Mark 13, um, verse 1, says, Then when he went out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, see what manner of stones and what buildings are here. And Jesus answered and said to them, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. This probably amazed them that Jesus was saying this, these magnificent buildings. And they've come out of the temple. You know, Jesus has just told them, your house, the Jews, your house is left unto you desolate. And so he's given some indication that these things will happen and we'll see more of that. And so they're you know, extolling the great buildings and all. And Jesus tells them, not one stone. So then in verse 3 it says, They sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew, Ask him privately, tell us, when will these things be? What will be the sign when all these things will be fulfilled? And Jesus answering them began to say, Take heed that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and will deceive many. But when you hear wars and rumors of wars, do not be troubled, for such things must happen, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, There will be earthquakes in various places and there will be famines and troubles. These are the beginnings of sorrows. So Jesus leaves the temple really the last time as he comes out. And a disciple points out the magnificence of the buildings to him. This disciple is unnamed, but we might presume that it's Peter since the source of this book is... um, Peter's giving it to Mark, situations that take place. But we don't know for sure. So the temple was an amazing sight in itself. It had been in construction mode for 46 years. We see in John chapter 2, when Jesus cleanses the temple for the first time, He drives them all out with this whip of cords He's made. He says, take these things away. Do not make my Father's house a house of prayer. And Um, they challenge him. He says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you'll raise it up in three days. They've been under construction for 46 years. It'll continue under construction for some time. It's not finished until 63 or 64 AD. Shortly before it's demolished. And John tells us he was speaking of the temple of his body And after he'd risen from the dead, his disciples remembered what he'd said to them and they believed the scripture that he said. This uh, temple, the eyewitness accounts say that it was the most magnificent temple in the ancient world, greater than all the pagan temples. The Jews themselves said, he who has not seen the building of Herod has never seen a beautiful building. With what is it built, says Rabbah, with stones of green and white marble? And there are others say that it was built with stones of spotted green and white marble. So there's, there was also this golden vine that was over the building and gold plates were attached to the walls. It was simply stunning. And, and the whiteness, they would say if he looked, he would think, oh, there's snow on Mount Zion because of the reflection and the, and the glare. And it was hard to look at, you know, like snow blindness because of the whiteness reflected from this. This was the second temple. 
The first was built by Solomon and it was destroyed when Jerusalem fell to the Babylonians. The second temple, known as Herod's temple, was first built by the returning Babylonian exiles. It was far less glorious than Solomon's temple. We read in Ezra chapter 3 with the returning exiles, in verse 8 it says, In the second month of the second year of their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, Yeshua, the son of Josadak, and the rest of their brethren, the priests and the Levites, and all those who had come out of the captivity to Jerusalem, began work and appointed the Levites from 20 years old and above to oversee the work of the house of the Lord. Then Yeshua with his sons and brothers, Kadmiel with his sons and the sons of Judah, arose as one to oversee those working on the house of God, the sons of Henadad with their sons and their brethren, the Levites. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests stood in their apparel with trumpets and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord, according to the ordinance of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever toward Israel. And then all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. So this, they've come back, the, the temple was destroyed, they lay a foundation for the new temple. It says in verse 12, many of the priests and Levites and heads of the fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first temple, they, were, they had to be old to have seen the first temple. It's been 70 years. They wept with a loud voice when the foundation of this temple was laid before their eyes. Yet many shouted aloud for joy. The people who hadn't seen the other temple shouted aloud for joy because the Lord's temple is being rebuilt. So that the people could not discern the noise of the shout of joy from the noise of the weeping of the people. For the people shouted with a loud shout, and the sound was heard afar off. So there was a lot of excitement when this uh, second temple, the foundation, was laid. This temple was much despised by those who had seen the first temple, but God responded to them with a promise over in Haggai, uh, chapter 2, verse 1. It says, In the seventh month, on the twenty-first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Yeshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people, saying, Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And now do you see it? In comparison with it, is this not in your eyes as nothing? Yet now be strong, Zerubbabel, says the Lord, and be strong, Yeshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and be strong, all you people of the land, says the Lord, and work. For I'm with you, says the Lord of hosts. According to the word that I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, so my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. A promise of his spirit being with these Israelites. For thus says the Lord of hosts, Once more, it's a little while, I will shake heaven and earth, the sea and dry land, and I will shake all nations, and they shall come to the desire of all nations. And I will fill this temple with glory, says the Lord of hosts. He's talking about this temple that was eventually Herod's temple on the Temple Mount. He says, I'll fill this temple with glory because the nations are going to come to the desire of all nations. So this is looking to the, the uh, distant future. But we see a time of the filling of this temple with, with glory through the coming of Jesus to it as well. 
He says, the silver's mine, the gold's mine, says the Lord of hosts. The glory of this latter temple shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, says the Lord of hosts. That has to be a reference to the coming of the Prince of Peace. It's the promise of the coming Messiah, which we see in the time of the Gospels. Earlier in Jesus' ministry, there was a dispute over the disciples harvesting on the Sabbath. You recall that, say, oh, you shouldn't be plucking those seeds of grain on the Sabbath in order to eat them. It's in Matthew chapter 5. Jesus, defending this action, says, Have you not read in the law, Matthew 12, 5, Have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless? In other words, they're, they're working on the Sabbath. Yet, yet, yet I say to you that in this place there is one greater than the temple. So he's, of course, speaking of himself. The glory that Jesus came with is greater than the glory of the temple. He says, if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. So this is the greater glory, the presence of the Lord of the temple, the one for whom they built it to worship was here, and they did not know. But physically, this was a glorious building as renovated by King Herod. After Herod's work, the temple was huge. The complex nearly 500 yards long and 400 yards wide. Herod's rebuilding started in 19 B.C. and it was not completed until 63 A.D., taking more than 80 years. And the magnificent temple compound was finished only seven years before it was destroyed by the Romans. The disciples marveled at it and wanted to share this grand feeling with Jesus. But Jesus knows too much. (laughs) The temple was glorious in the physical only. The spiritual was not glorious. The worship was corrupted by those in leadership positions. It was about money and power only. Common men could still come in purity of heart to worship, But the system itself was not pleasing to God and would be destroyed, as Jesus says. Jesus had spoken in recent days about the desolation of the house of Israel, and this may have prompted the question here on the Mount of Olivet. In Luke 19, verse 41, we read that as Jesus drew near, he saw the city and he wept over it, saying, If you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. For days will come upon you when when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you and close you in on every side and level you and your children within you to the ground and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. And then in Matthew 23, 37 In the same context, Jesus cries out, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So it was in 70 A.D. that the Roman army under Titus destroyed the temple, burning the flammable items by setting fire to kill the people inside. 
Overall, in response to Jewish rebellions of this time, the Romans killed about a million Jewish people. Later, when Jesus talks about a time worse than any other time in history, he's not talking about 70 A.D., which is when this took place, because there have been much worse times even for the Jewish people. And that worst time in history is yet to come. Well, the Roman soldiers received part of their remuneration through plunder, and they tore the stones apart to get to the gold that had melted and run into the crevices between the stones. There was no mortar used in the construction. It was not needed because the stones were cut at the quarry to fit tightly together. Some of the stones have been found where they were cast down. And in this context, we read before Psalm 118, where it says, The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And there was a tale about Solomon and the stone being brought out and, and presented, and they did the Builders couldn't figure out where it went, so they just set it aside. And, and it was only when they, it's a capstone, can, you know, is also called cornerstone. When they got to that point, they were like, oh, where's it at? And it was, you know, down and overgrown with some weeds and stuff. Some of these stones were enormous. Well, some of them still are enormous, I guess. But Josephus tells us that while some of the stones were 45 feet long, most were 37 and a half feet long, 12 feet high, and 18 broad. We see some stones remaining in the western or wailing wall, and some larger ones can now be viewed in a tunnel that has been excavated. Now, these cut quarried blocks of limestone are so big, some of these in the foundation area, some are 50 feet wide, 25 feet high, 15 feet deep. They're so large that modern construction cranes could not lift them. Archaeologists are still not completely certain how these stones were cut, transported, and placed with such precision that they don't even need mortar. Some of these stones weighed up to 100 tons. Now, you know... Uh, men of previous ages were not inferior to us and, and probably in many ways they had superior understanding and knowledge. We were on the degenerative side of the scale, you know, as entropy continues to work. <laughs> but we're still marvelously, wonderfully made. These stones were not part of the buildings that we're seeing in the western wall, but they were part of the retaining wall for the temple mount. Jesus' prophecy was literally fulfilled. The stones comprising the buildings were all thrown down. Josephus tells us also that the whole enclosing walls and precincts of the temple were so thoroughly leveled and dug up that no one visiting the city would believe it had ever been inhabited. This is the extent of, you know, Jesus just said, all of them are going to be thrown down. But this is how it ended up. It is said that at the fall of Jerusalem, the last surviving Jews of the city fled into the temple because it was the strongest, most secure building in the city. And Roman soldiers surrounded it. And one drunken soldier started a fire that soon engulfed the whole building. Ornate gold detail work in the roof melted down in the cracks between the stone walls of the temple. To retrieve the gold, the Roman commander ordered that the temple be dismantled stone by stone. The destruction was so complete that today they have true difficulty learning exactly where the temple was. And there, it's disputed. Some think it was where the Alaska Mosque is today. 
Uh, some believe it's over in another area, which there is some evidence for as well, but uh, no clear, um, definite indication of where it is. Uh, one lesson for us is we don't we, we don't want to become attracted to things which have only a passing value. All will be brought to nothing, and all will be renewed as well. In Second Corinthians chapter four, uh, Paul speaking about suffering, says in verse 16, Therefore we do not lose heart because of the way the Lord had been using them. Even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Now there's one more temple to come. This one's been destroyed. It's gone. The tribulation temple. It's the preparations are being made. Well, they have been made by the Jews presently in Israel. You can look at the templeinstitute.org and you can see they have a museum there and they've prepared everything. The only thing they're waiting on now is the red heifer. And there's a video out there. They, you know, they've occasionally had red, red heifers under observation. And I don't know how old this video is, the last, the last one. It could still be current. They had two. They had two previously. And the guy says, well, they, you know, they got to the right age and there were some white hairs. And so they're not kosher because of these white hairs. Because the Lord said it has to be perfect, right? Now, I don't think the Lord, you know, with the red heifer would indicate that it had to be perfect without any white hairs in it. You know, I don't think the Lord's that uh, particular about this red heifer. But that's the way the Jews uh, view it. And so it has to not, it has to be totally red. So they got these two under observation now. They, they both have some white hairs in their coat. But they're saying, well, you know, they could change, you know, they could be totally red by the time. So, we see the Lord using this view of the red heifer as timing. When he's ready, he's going to give them a heifer that is perfectly red. And and that third temple uh, will be put in place. And Jesus speaks of this third temple in the Olivet Discourse, which we're getting into. We won't get to it uh, today. So he's sitting on the Mount of Olives. These two, uh, well, two sets of brothers come to him. He goes through the East Gate, and uh, you can see the temple complex from the Mount of Olives. And they begin to ask him about what he said earlier. When will these things be? What sign will there be when it's time? This discourse is also recounted in Matthew 24 and Luke 21. I'll be referring to these passages some, but you may want to read these passages in conjunction with Mark 13 because it gives a fuller record of what was said by Jesus. So they ask these questions. Um, Matthew 24.3 gives the questions in this way. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? So there's like a three-part question in Matthew. Uh, It's condensed for us by Mark, or rather by the Holy Spirit through Mark. Uh, The answer is in the context of the end times and the second coming of Jesus. They want to know when the kingdom will happen. 
This has been their their view all along. Is is it time? Okay, you're going to take over now, Jesus. You know. They want to know when the kingdom will happen. They still expected it soon, even though Jesus had given indications that it would not be immediate. He tells a parable in Luke 19:11 that says. Uh, when they heard these things, he spoke another parable because he was near Jerusalem and because they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. And so he talks about this nobleman that went away to a far country and he left uh, some valuables with his servants for them to deal with and to take care of his business while he was gone. Um, J. Vernon McGee says, Matthew records all three questions put to our Lord by the disciples. One, tell us when shall these things be? This refers to when one stone will not be left on another. And Luke gives our Lord's answer to this question. That's in Luke 21, verse 20. The same time frame, he's on the Mount of Olives and he's speaking to these apostles. And he says in verse 20, When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its destruction is near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are in the midst of her depart. Let not those who are in the country enter her. For these are the days of vengeance, that all things which are written may be fulfilled. But woe to those who are pregnant, to those who are nursing babies in those days. For there will be great distress in the land and wrath upon this people. In the time frames given to us in verse 24, they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led away captive into all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled by Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. So this is referring to the destruction of the second temple. uh, The stones being thrown down in 70 AD because uh, they will not be carried away captive into all nations again at any other time. And then the second question, what shall be the sign of thy coming? And three, what shall be the sign of the end of the world or the end of the age, actually? William MacDonald says some of the prophecies seem to depict the destruction of Jerusalem, A.D. 70. Most of them obviously go beyond that date to the tribulation period and to the personal return of Christ in power and glory. The watchwords of the discourse which apply to believers in every dispensation that is applied to us as well are take heed, do not be troubled, endure, pray, and watch. Those are things that apply to all of us even though many of these things spoken about here are yet future. You know, one thing about prophecy, at least my my view of prophecy is that it's like a jigsaw puzzle. All the pieces are there uh, that we have for us in Scripture, except maybe the seven thunders in the book of Revelation, because John's getting ready to write it down, and the angel tells him, don't write that. But we have all these pieces, and of course with a jigsaw puzzle, you're putting the pieces in the, in the places where they match and line up. And uh, as these things take place and approach, more of the pieces make sense where they fall into place. Um, Myself, I'm still working on the outer border, I think. Uh, There are some things I know that I'm convinced of, that I'm dogmatic about. There are many things that are yet yet to be seen. Where does this piece fit? And sometimes you might, you know, you ever done a jigsaw puzzle and you put a piece in place? Seems like it fits. 
and then later you decided you have to take that piece out and you find one another one that fits better. Right. So I'm going to give you my view of, of these things. Uh, there are those who may have a different view about about some of it. And you'll have to seek it out, you know. But um, one thing about prophecies concerning the future. And by the prophets of the Old Testament, the prophets of the New Testament, as many times they're not in chronological order. Or you'll find things butted up right next to each other that are uh, separated by centuries. And so uh, we have to seek the Lord, be open to His Spirit, and, and trust in Him, certainly. But everything that He said is going to come to pass, and I believe it will all be quite literally. I don't think there's any allegory that's being spoken of now. Some of it, you know, John sees visions, but I think those things, when we see them and recognize them, and although we won't be here in, in Revelation, uh, I think we'll recognize that this is a literal fulfillment of what the Lord is, is saying. So first in priority, Jesus warns, take heed that no one deceives you. Someone tells me in the Greek, this is the present imperative. I'm not a Greek scholar, but the present imperative means uh, you must continually watch out that no one deceives you. And this is in regard to the end times. Of course, we, we need to be on the watch that no one deceives us in regard to all things. Jesus speaks to these apostles, but far beyond them, even to our day and beyond our day in the things that he says. These men were not likely to mistake a counterfeit for the real Jesus. But all believers always need to be aware of deception, false teaching, heresies. This is not the first time Jesus has warned them about false prophets. We read in Matthew 7, verse 15, Jesus told them, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Now, most false prophets will come to you in sheep's clothing. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit and a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits you will know them. The fruit to examine is the words that come forth from these prophets. Their behavior may be deceptive. The Antichrist himself will fool all but the elect by his charisma and personality. There will be no nice guy like this nice guy. The world is going to love him so much more than they ever loved Jesus or who they think Jesus is. But underneath the smooth veneer are the teeth of a ravenous wolf. In 2 Corinthians 11 verses 1 through 4, uh, Paul warns, he says, Oh, that you would bear with me a little folly, and indeed you do bear with me, for I am jealous for you with godly jealousy. For I betrothed you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. But I fear lest somehow as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. For if he who comes preaches another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or if you receive a different spirit, which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you may well put up with it. And then further in chapter 11 and verse 12, he says, 
What I do, I will also continue to do that I may cut off the opportunity from those who desire an opportunity to be regarded just as we are in the things of which they boast. These people were saying they needed to be uh, circumcised and keep the law of Moses. And so Paul's saying, I'll do what I'm doing so I can cut them off from this opportunity. And he says, for such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore, it's no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness, whose end will be according to their works. As you look around, do you see any uh, that you recognize as uh, false apostles, deceitful workers, who are transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ? or ministers of righteousness, they're out there. Watch out for misrepresentations of Jesus. But the fruit of a false prophet is false doctrine, that which by deception leads people astray. The best protection against false teaching is to know the truth. Be in the Bible regularly, daily is best, and you'll have the tools to discern truth from error. The last days are characterized by deception on a massive scale. And we are seeing great deception in our day. It tells us that we're in the last days and this, these times of deception are going to increase as time goes on. We're seeing this great deception. It's as if the world has gone mad, and they have, in their rejection of God's word of truth. And he has been giving them over to an unsound mind and a delusion. And many who call themselves Christians are walking in the worldview of the world and not in the worldview of God's Word. Second Peter chapter 2, Peter also warns us in verse 1, he says, uh, There were false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them, and bring on themselves swift Destruction, and many will follow their destructive ways because of whom the way of the truth will be blasphemed. By covetousness, they will exploit you with deceptive words. For a long time, their judgment has not been idle, their destruction does not slumber. For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and deliver them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment, and he goes on to talk about that. A judgment that was there, but he says there are going to be false teachers among you. This is a challenge. This is scary. You know that there are going to be false teachers within Christendom. We might say we must discern the truth and recognize, avoid, and expose those who are teaching falsely while claiming to be teaching the truth. In Acts chapter 17, when Paul and Silas came to Berea, um, it says, when they arrived, it's verse 10, last part of verse 10, when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. These were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. Therefore, many of them believed and also not a few of the Greeks prominent women as well as men. So these are commended because they actually, uh, in listening to Paul and Silas, they actually went back and searched 
the scriptures that they had to confirm whether what they were saying matched up with what the scriptures said. And they found that they did. So all teaching must be examined by the Word of God because there are those who twist Scripture to support their own brand of religion or to exalt themselves. In Acts chapter 20, Paul speaking to, or speaking to the elders from Ephesus in verse 26 says, Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. So I said, after I leave here, there are going to be wolves from the outside coming in, seeking to devour the flock. But he says in verse 30, also from among yourselves. Men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. This is the frightening thing. From among yourselves, men will rise up. And they're going to speak perverse things, I'm sure, to many people who are not steeped in the Word. They're not going to sound like perverse things. They're going to sound like correct things. Why are they doing this? To draw away the disciples after themselves. Uh, You don't want to follow anyone who is seeking to draw people to themselves and not to the Lord Jesus. Therefore, watch, he says, remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. So now, brethren, I I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. And then in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 1, Timothy says, I charge you there, or I'm sorry, Paul says to Timothy, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season, out of season, convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. So we want to watch. We don't want to be uh, caught in that kind of a situation. Many today are departing from biblical teaching and they're harmonizing with the ways of the world, a world system that despises the ways of God. So Jesus says, take heed that no one deceive you. And he says, For many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and will deceive many. These false teachers will come in the name of Jesus. Some will claim to speak for Jesus, but it will not be the biblical Jesus they represent. They do not know him, and they misrepresent him. We briefly mentioned a few of the cults of Christianity last week that are in this vein, such as Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormonism. There are many lesser groups out there that misrepresent Jesus. Their definition of Jesus does not meet the facts of the person of Christ given in the Old and New Testaments. Islam as well claims Jesus as a prophet, but the Muslim Jesus is not the biblical Jesus. The New Age or Eastern mystical Jesus is likewise not 
the true Son of God. We must guard jealously the truth about the biblical Jesus, shunning compromise of any kind as to his nature or person, lest some be led astray into error. Others will come saying that they are the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed of God, such as the future one called Antichrist. In Matthew 24, 5, Matthew quotes Jesus this way, For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. So there are those out, here, out there who are claiming to be Jesus and the second coming of Jesus. I mean, there are... There are multitudes of them out there that you can find. I don't care that you go about looking and finding them. I don't, I don't want you to do that. But they're out there and, and easy enough to uh, locate by the things that they say and the things that they do. In John eight twenty four, Jesus said, Therefore I said to you, you will die in your sins. For if you do not believe that I am you will die in your sins. So we have to believe that Jesus is the great I Am. In Second John chapter 2 and verse 18, this was in the uh, latter part of the first century, John writes, Little children, it's the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come, by which we know that it is the last hour. So the anti in the Greek, is not just opposed to, but it also is in the place of. And so the Antichrist is going to present himself as the Christ, the Anointed One of God, the Messiah, and he will be accepted as such by many in the world. We've seen modern examples of this, of people claiming to be Jesus returned. Uh, Reverend Moon was one of them that was popular in my Youth, uh, he claimed to be the second coming of Jesus, and that he thought that Jesus had failed in his mission, and that he should have had this perfect family, and that was the real mission of God was to establish a perfect family, and then they would, you know, rule over the earth. And uh, there was one time where he was. on trial, I don't remember what his offense or was uh, alleged to be. He was on trial in the courtroom. He was being cross-examined by the prosecution, and he, it said that Jesus appeared to him and gave him this mission, or God did. And, well, it was Jesus. Jesus did. I don't know. It could be a second coming of Jesus if Jesus appeared again. Yeah. Um, so. He's being cross-examined by this prosecutor, and the prosecutor says, well, how did you know it was Jesus? And he said, well, I recognized him from his pictures. <laughs> Another one that you've heard of, David Koresh, claimed to be the second coming of Jesus, and you know uh, the horrible things that were done there in wiping out their group. I mean, there wasn't any any reason for them to be targeted and destroyed in the in the way that they were, but he was a false false prophet, false teacher. Um, and there are others who make this claim either subtly or explicitly um, around the world. You can find them. And and some of them have hundreds, some have thousands of followers. 
who believe these claims that they're making. There are some followers of mysticism. They've claimed to be Christ reincarnated, which is a perversion of the second coming. The reincarnation itself is a false doctrine. And there are going to be more counterfeits as the Lord tarries. Jesus warns later in this discourse down in Mark 13, verse 21, he says, Then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or look, he's there, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will rise and show signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. So we don't want to get caught up into signs and wonders as you know proof of who these men are. He says, but take heed. See, I've told you all things beforehand. Now, Jesus talks about his coming. He says it's going to be like lightning flashing from the east to the west. Every eye is going to see him, we're told in Revelation. Um, so, he's not going to come in secret. He's not going to be over here, over there. Or, you know, Jesus says at one point, in the inner rooms. They tell you he's in the inner rooms. Don't believe it. Well, both of these types will deceive many because they will preach a false Christ and a false salvation, whether they're saying uh, Jesus is the Christ, but they're changing him into something he's not, or if they're saying they are the Christ, um, they're both full of deception and will cause great problems. We may wonder why God would allow such. God gives men choices so that they may freely choose him. Just as in the garden, there was the tree of life or the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And men may still choose the tree of life now. That is the cross of Christ Jesus. That's the tree of life now. And that cross, that tree purchases redemption for any who will come to him. And men may still choose another way or another path. And that way does not lead to life. If you've not yet made that choice, you can do so today. Today you can enter into life. Today is the day of salvation. You need not put it off another day. You can be rid of the burden of sin, set free into the kingdom of God now, this morning. So God gives people a choice, but God only gives men over to delusion when they have ultimately and finally rejected Him to rule over them.